Hello and welcome to the Assembly Line, an NES homebrew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin from Kahan Games. And I'm Bo from Soul Goose Productions. And we're here to talk about homebrews. How you been, Bo? Ah, busy. How about you, Kevin? Busy is a very good word for it. <laughs> you know, you'd think after the holidays are over, you'd, you'd have a, some chance to breathe, but suddenly January's already gone. Yeah, I kept, you know, trying to, like, delay all these plans I was making, because a lot of people wanted to get together, and I would say, like, just wait until after the holidays, you know, January will come around, I'll have more time, and then, like, every day just feels so busy still, it's crazy. Yeah, and it's not like a, it's not a bad thing. I mean, the first like whole week of January was taken up with Magfest, which was a great time. The best time. <laughs> yeah, you really did enjoy it. Uh, I was surprised. It's become far and away my favorite uh, expo. It is a very, very large. Is it the biggest expo? I'm not quite certain. Uh, I'm not certain either. Um, I. I think it has an extra day on Portland, so I don't know if it's a fair comparison to just look at numbers, uh, but it was packed for sure. I've heard like Portland's the biggest retro gaming thing, and then like MAGFest is the biggest like music and games, so I don't know. These places, they, they take whatever tagline they can get, I guess. Well, they have everything there. I mean, they have the arcade, they have the indie game showcase area, they have the uh, vendor area, they have the concert halls, you know, upstairs, you have the tabletop gaming area, and the computer museum, like, it's it's so much to do, like, even when you have four days to do it, you still can't see everything. Plus, it's 24 hours. Oh, man, isn't it? <laughs> God, yeah, we had fun. You're talking about not sleeping. Not sleeping mixed with lots of alcohol. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a big show. It was a lot of fun. And you didn't have anything there, but there was a decent homebrew presence. Uh, I was there with Spookatron and my little red space helmet TV. Uh, Kevbot was there with uh, an assortment of games until one of them uh, was kindly asked to not be shown anymore. <laughs> And, well, I think you can guess which one. <laughs> Justin was there with, uh, he had uh, early copies of Free Cell available, which is part of his ongoing sort of MS entertainment pack that he's slowly been doing. Minesweeper was out, and then uh, now Free Cell. He uses different names for him, UXO. and <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think this one is called Free Cell. The Haunted Guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Tim and Greg, they were there. Yep. That was that was a blast talking and, with uh, them again. Was Mega Cat there? Oh yeah, yeah. James was there. James and his crew, they were there uh, showing off like phew, I don't know, eight games or something. Star versus guy was there. Dustin, yeah, he was there. I only got to see him for a second though. Um, I think that's. I'm sure we forgot someone. I'm sorry. Yeah, there's always somebody. It's usually Frank. I almost always forget <laughs> to mention that Frank is at events, but uh. Frank was definitely not there. No, he was not there this time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it was a fun time. And it was it was interesting to me because this is the first time that I've had a game that I was selling that I also have made myself and wasn't just publishing for somebody else. And Yeah, that's that's a really big deal, man. Like you you've been to a lot of these expos, you know, just sort of like supporting your friends and, you know, selling the games that you've published, but you've never had sort of your baby that you could 
show someone, take money, and hand them a copy. So I was really uh, sort of proud seeing you uh, do that. It's nice. Is this where we cue the uh, coming-of-age music? Probably. Okay. You know. We need to find some of that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was it was really just weird to like have people be sitting there playing and like watching them and sort of like creep up behind them like I like to do and then uh, either give some pointers or just, you know, tell them they have the controller upside down or whatever. <laughs> but most of them like understood how to play the game like right away, which was just a huge, huge sigh of relief to me because I... After MGC, I was sort of worried that people didn't quite get it. Well, it was nice because you had it set up with the Virtual Boy controller, and it, it helped, of course, that you, you edited the game to where it, 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 that selection saved, so you didn't have to keep switching it back. But I think there's something sort of instantly familiar about the game. Like, you move with the left stick, you shoot with the right stick. There's not a lot that you really have to figure out. You would think I had a girl at Mag or at MGC just sit there for like 10 minutes and nothing was moving and she couldn't figure out what to do because I had like <laughs> debug mode in there. So she turned off enemies and she's just walking around <laughs> killing things. I'm like, oh, geez, this isn't going to work. Oh, man. But yeah, no, it was it was neat. I had a couple backers come up to me and then I got to give them their copies early and in person. Uh, Alex, uh, guy named Alex. And, <laughs> well, your last name. I don't know. People don't want their, you know, last name said. But yes, Alex, that's it, was why. Great, it was great to meet. And t- yes, that is why. <laughs> I almost had it out, but I, I caught myself. Uh, nice. But yeah, no, it was just, it was weird, like, to talk with somebody who had followed the project the whole time and, like, been waiting expectantly. Uh, Speaking of um, meeting someone who knows the project, we had someone come up and introduce himself who actually listens to our podcast. Oh, yes. E.C. Myers. That was really surreal. <laughs> wow, that was weird. Uh, it's it's strange when you're, like, recognized based off of an 8-bit profile drawn by your friend Tim. <laughs> and he's like, hey, I know your voice. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. Golly, that was strange. Super nice guy, though. It was awesome meeting him. Not to say if you're ever in a situation where you see us to not introduce yourself, but uh, it is strange <laughs> when you're like, oh man, I hear that voice in my, in my sleep. I'm like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> oh man. Um, but what I love most about MAGFest is that they, they usually put us in the same room as the indie game developers. Um, so going around and seeing all of the new games that people, um, it's, it's a treat, I think, because indie games are, are primarily what I spend my time playing. Um, and usually it's on the Xbox one, but a lot of these games that people are working on come out for all the, the modern platforms. Um, so it's really cool getting to go around meeting the people who make the games and getting to try them out because it's, uh, they're always coming up with really unique gameplay ideas. I, I think this is kind of the golden age of, of indie games because people aren't afraid to try unique things. And it seems like uh, consumers are really willing to, uh, to really go there with you and, and give them a try. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. And if you're unhappy with somebody, you can actually hassle them in person about not finishing it, right? Yeah, sorry, it's Pixel Noir guy. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> you gave him hell. Well, okay, when's the last time we were at MAGFest? Was it two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. And it was almost out two years ago, and then we're passing by him, and I'm like, hey, when's it coming out? Oh, it's coming out soon. Yeah, you said that two years ago, all right? Don't Oof. feed me those lines. Yeah, well, as one who might have missed a release date, I can fully understand. 
but I'm only passionate about it because I'm very much looking forward to it. So when that game comes oh, out, I will be playing it for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of weird that, uh, well, it's not maybe weird, but it's it's a little different that the classic console homebrew games are thrown into the same room with the indie games. Um, are homebrews indie games? Are indie games homebrews? Let us discuss. The eternal question. <laughs> well, the eternal question is homebrews versus repros, but. Oh, okay. Well, that one's a little easier to answer, in my opinion. Well, in your opinion, of course. Same in mine, but ah. oh, I saw stuff today already. I, I can't go there right now. <laughs> we will. Yeah, we won't go down that road. Um, okay. Well, what would you, what would you say the differences are between an indie game and a homebrew? Homebrew games are indie games that don't make money. <laughs> so you think indie games typically make money? I no. I that's that's always what I tell people. And they're like, <laughs> why don't you? Why don't you make indie games? I'm like, I. I just, I do this because I don't want to make any money. Like that's why I chose oh, this life. Yes. Well, you you picked the right life, my friend. I don't. What's uh? How would you describe an indie game? So, it's really hard for me because cause they do have a lot of similarities. You know, indie games and homebrews. But typically, when I think of indie games, I think of a team of people that maybe don't live in the same area they're they're all working sort of remotely but they're sort of putting together a, a modern game and and a lot of these games sometimes have retro sort of influences but it's a new game for typically a modern console um or a PC but it seems to me that usually at least from what i see it looks like they do this as their main thing like it's not a sort of a stay at home in your spare time passion project type thing oh so they're like more legitimate official and able to make a real living off of it uh that's sort of the way i look at it and and a, a lot of them probably can't necessarily make a living off of it and and they very well could be doing it in their spare time but it seems in my opinion that indie developers um are a little bit more sort of professional about things and and that's probably a terrible thing to say because i think that what we do is professional the way we present ourselves and you know the way we sort of do the packaging and and present the products but uh the games themselves and the route that they take to make them i think it's a little bit more sort of this is what my main thing is mm, i see hmm that's just my opinion Oh, and you're entitled to it. What are some indie games that you would throw up as examples of that sort of, uh, not genre, but category of game? Uh, well, we could throw out, you know, the famous ones like Super Meat Boy and oh, yeah. Fez. Um, you know, the games that sort of everyone kind of knows about. Somebody saw a movie. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure most of the <laughs> listeners saw that, but um, a lot of other ones that I love are um, Hugh and Oxenfree, Thomas Was Alone. There, there's just some really, really unique experiences that are put together very, very well, and they're a lot of fun, man. See, that's different than me, because I don't play on modern consoles until this past week, and <laughs> I finally got a 3DS. <laughs> Welcome to Very the excited. But like when I think of indie games, I think of, of course, the ones in the, that movie, but also 
cave story, which was done by a guy in his free time at nights over like five years. And that's sort of the shining example for me of like what an indie game is, but it only went on to, you know, become a hit later down the line. So and that's more similar. Ooh, Shovel Knight. Can't forget Shovel Knight. Oh yeah, Knight. Shovel Knight. That's right. See, I don't even think of that one as an indie one because it got so big. Yeah. I don't think the end, like the success necessarily needs to define what an indie game is. Um, and that, and that's where things get a little confusing. I think homebrews typically are on more retro systems, you know, by a person, maybe a couple people, um, but usually a single person kind of just like putting blood, sweat and tears into a passion project on a system they love. See, I would do the platform of choice as the de- sort of the defining, maybe not the defining factor, but one of the greater descriptors for the mm-hmm. for the category. Uh, you know, homebrew games are made, new games for old systems, and then you could kind of make that word old mean many things. You know, you could be making something for the, I know the one guy does PS1 and Dreamcast stuff, and that, you know, to me that counts, like it's old enough. But if you were, but see, then the guy who did that uh, Diamond Trust of London for the DS while the DS mm-hmm. was still in its life cycle, it's like, no, it's just a single dude doing his thing on a current platform. So it, I don't know, it, 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 like the definition of a homebrew as a whole, it's, it's a very fluid thing and it's up to, you know, you can define it many different ways and each person is going to define it a little different. But for me, at least, uh, Homebrew games are games for older systems. Indie games are targeting more of a modern, new audience. But then there's so much overlap uh, in terms of the actual game content. Uh, You see indie games being ported over to the NES, NES games sort of being ported over to the uh, indie scene, at least with PC downloads and Steam stuff. And it's, you know, it's it's very fluid. Yeah, um, I remember someone, it was probably a couple years ago, someone making a thread on Nintendo Age and I think th- this sort of topic came up. Um, someone maybe made a thread title that that said indie game when referring to a homebrew. And oh, the one that Bill did. I I don't remember specifically, yeah. but I remember that. I remember there were some uh, some words. So people are very uh, emotional uh, about the title of homebrew. Well, definitions as a whole, you end up getting that way with usually. Yeah. It was just, it was interesting to be in the indie section with like real indie developers and we're just sort of like doing this homebrew thing. It's kind of like weird even for them. <laughs> like we're like yeah. the 5% of this 5% sort of category of games. Right, right. And it's, I don't think people necessarily kind of knew what to do, like what to make of us. Like if you walk around, like everyone sort of has their modern system set up with their modern controllers or their, you know, their computers, like everyone's there showcasing this like cutting edge stuff. And then like, here we are in a corner with some Nintendos. I, I don't know that people necessarily, I mean, I, I know a lot of people got it, but I, I did see some sort of puzzled looks when they were trying to make sense of us. Oh, I do enjoy those puzzled looks. <laughs> and then just imagine handing them a virtual boy controller and not an NES controller. And they just get real weird. Yeah. And it's not just the games themselves that, you know, get ported back and forth between, you know, classic consoles and modern platforms, but you also get different developers who make either indie games and then they start making homebrews or homebrews who start making indie games. And one of the most interesting has been um, 
fellow by the name of Matthias who did a game called Quest Forge by Order of Kings, which we have talked about or talked about talking about on numerous occasions now. Quest Forge! It is finally time to talk about what is one of the, in my opinion, better games on, on the NES. Yeah, so this game sort of, it's funny because you and I were sort of, you know, we're pretty involved in the scene. We know who's working on what, we know what's coming out, we know, you know, we, we, we're in the know. And I was <laughs> not in the know uh, as far as this game was concerned. I drove up from uh, the warm state of Florida up to visit you last year. Two years ago, two years ago. Was it two years ago? Time does fly when you're homebrewing and having fun. My God. Came up there, you know, hiding from the snow, trying to stay warm, going through your collection, and I came across this game I'd never seen before. So I was like, Quest Forge, what is this? And uh, you put it in, and man, like, I was glued from the start, man. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing like this on the NES. I mean, it has sort of aspects of action-adventure games, it has aspects of, like, roguelike games, it has so many different sort of game types kind of thrown together, and a lot of times when people do something like that, it just comes out like a, a kind of a cluster. But man, like, everything about this game works, uh, and I just sat there, and I played the hell out of it, and I, I sat I wanted to beat it before I left, because I think it was, like, the last day before I was uh, leaving to come back to Florida. But I wound up getting to the very end, and stumbling upon one of the very few bugs in the game that prevented me from completing it. But uh, man, like, don't let the, the, the thought of like a bug being in the game dissuade you from playing this because um, beginning to end, it gripped me, you know, gameplay, story, like it's, it's all good. Well, you went home and bought it like the next day, didn't you? I came home, played it, and just fell in love and wanted to tell everyone about it. So I don't think I've shut up about it since I got home from your house two years ago. It's it's <laughs> it's really good. Well, okay, so I guess let's back up uh, you, from this gushing awesomeness yes. that you have just spilled forth. Uh, yeah, I got to clean up over here. It's just it's a mess. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> um, so yeah, the game you play as this little like night guy, uh, Sir Nils, and you are questing after this orb, and that is you know pretty much as much story as you're getting in Zelda. So you have at least that much in Quest Forge, and uh, the manual's got some you know other little details, and it's very pretty and all that. But your basic thing is you're a little guy, you're trying to find something. So uh, how do we go about that in terms of gameplay, Kevin? Well, first of all, let me just state. You know how much I love Zelda, right? I do, I do. I mean, it's it's probably my favorite Nintendo game. That would make two of us, I think. And I would go so far as to say this game made me want to complete it more than Zelda made me want to complete it. Like there's just something about this game. I I don't know if it's the the various you know, parts of the the map that are so sort of discernible, like they're so unique, but man, like I just kept wanting to see what was next, what was next. Um, so anyway, sorry about that side tangent. What was the question again? (laughs) (laughs) 
What are we actually doing when we uh, finally fire it up and get through the title screen and all that? What do, what is, uh, tell me about the battle system, I guess. Okay. Or the exploration. Well, tell me, uh, give me a description of the gameplay itself. Uh, okay. Anywhere so, you want to start. Envision sort of how the original Zelda looks with the sort of overhead map. Um, you know, you're, you're going to the edge of the screen and then that in turn loads a new screen. And that's sort of how you explore this world. But what makes this game so unique, and I don't think I've seen this in any other game ever, and I, I, you know, I probably haven't played a ton of games that are out there in the world, so there's probably you? something. Shut up. Um, but, <laughs> but what's cool, like, when you press the A button, it spits out this power meter, and it starts out from full and kind of depletes to empty. Like, when you're kicking off in Tecmo Bowl, imagine that but the opposite and way faster. You push the button, the bar depletes in like the blink of an eye, but the the higher, like the more bar that's there as you run into an enemy, that basically signifies how powerful you're going to be when you attack. So if your bar is completely full when you run into an enemy, you're pretty much going to kick their butt. And if well, it's you empty, hope. yeah, you hope. But if it's empty, you're probably not going to kick its butt. It's probably going to win that little round. And if you lose sort of a battle with an enemy, you lose a heart, which is another kind of unique thing that I've never seen in another game. You don't see like a life system in action adventures usually. So that, and you, it's, you usually have like one life and then you start, you know, from your last save point or whatever. But in this, you have, you know, four or five lives. And once they deplete, you have to start from the very beginning. No saves, no nothing. It's kind of different. Yeah. And in addition to that, there's an experience system. So when you kill an enemy, you get some experience depending on sort of how powerful the enemy is in relation to what level you are. So a lot of times you're sort of, gr and I don't want to say grinding because the game never feels like you have to grind to sort of continue in the game. Um, but you'll find yourself sort of going back and forth to get some quick experience because there are four categories that you can level up. And it's been a little while since I played, but I think it's power, uh, speed, is Vitality one of them? Yes. And a fourth one, which you will name right now. Uh, there isn't a fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> the fourth slot is your weapon. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, which is another unique thing about the game. Like, there are weapons sort of hidden throughout the world, and they're blocked by various obstacles that you unlock as sort of you beat bosses throughout the game but they're not in sort of chronological order. You have to do some backtracking um, and a lot of sort of exploring, but it never feels... A lot of game, a lot of RPGs, and I know this isn't a true RPG, but a lot of RPGs make you backtrack, and it feels sort of almost like a chore that you have to go back and, oh, God, I got to do this again. Okay, whatever. Um, but these weapons... Uh, do you disagree? I, I thought it was a lot of fun sort of going around seeing... Because there's a weapon that sort of spawns right near the beginning of the game. You turn on the game, there's a weapon like a screen to the left. And I kept going back to see if I could get it yet. Can I get it yet? Can I get it yet? And finally it unlocked. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's unique and it's, damn, it's fun. Yeah, it's my uh, deep, deep sigh there was for your anti-RPG comments. But um, <laughs> Quest Forge itself is sort of interesting because, I mean, it looks a lot like Zelda in terms of how you're moving around and then the enemies and their placement on the screen and how they move around. 
But when you actually hit battles, it's very much like a rogue uh, type game where you just you run into them with that power meter that gives you a bit of an advantage. But that's really like all you do after that. You just exchange hits back and forth until one or the other dies or you you know lose a heart if you still have some. And yeah, it's just a little it's very different than what's normally out there. Yeah, and you had mentioned previously that, you know, if you run out of life, you do get a game over and there aren't any continues. So when you're down to one heart, like, yeah, it's uh, the tension is real, man. Like you are sort of super hypersensitive of like your every move because you don't want to run into a battle that you know you can't win. Well, that's uh, that's one of the times, too, where you, you go back to the easier enemies, you grind out that next level because it gives you a couple hearts every level. Yeah. And then, but, you know, you have to, and with the experience system as a whole, like, the stronger you get, the weaker enemies, they either give you less or at some point they start giving you nothing. So, you still have a bit of a challenge there. You can't just go back to the very beginning, grind out that, you know, next level, then go back. You have to you may have to go back and fight some semi-difficult enemies to get to that next level, and it's very tense. Yeah, and and he, they did, a, I guess he, he did a good job of, um, it's not just enemies that sort of populate the world. He actually hid some, some extra hearts that you can find and some mm-hmm. little experience gems that you can find to... Uh, oh, the shields and, and the, of course, the weapons. Uh, yeah. Oh, and the shield too. Like if you right before battle, if you hit B, I think it activates your like super defenses. And so you can sort of plow through some stuff you wouldn't normally be able to, but you don't get very many of them in the game. So it's kind of a risk versus reward thing. And then one more thing, um, there's a million more things I could go on and on about, but one more thing that I loved is he actually hid some, some secrets in the game. And one of them sort of you know a lot of times people put secrets in the game that aren't at all obvious so like you just have to sort of stumble into them and, or luck into them but there's one sort of shield was it a shield in the, in the game where it's in in a tree and you have to oh, sort there's of there's a couple like that yeah yeah you have to find sort of where you can walk through a place where you probably shouldn't be able to normally so there is it it very much encourages you to sort of try different things Well, exploration, as much as the battle system is really unique and fun to sort of do, uh, exploration is sort of the name of the game with this one. You travel across this sort of large world. Um, You go through kind of a grassy field, under the sea, a desert, mountains, snow mountains. It's it's got quite a bit of of geography in it. Yeah, every every place feels unique and i i can't say that about a lot of nintendo games because because of the system's limitations you know you have art wise you have to be i know you hate when people say that i do um but (laughs) it's true like you have you're forced to be creative to make areas feel truly unique and i think this game does a great job about it well it does a much better job than like zelda where they just turned you know all the trees brown yeah or gray and white like it's swaps yeah, and it's not just simple palette swaps, but it's sort of a, you know, unique graphics for each area. At least they they seem to be unique, uh, from what I could tell. Have we talked about how long the game is? Um, no. Go for it. It's like you said. There's no sort of saves or continues. Um, so if it was too long, it would probably 
be a hindrance to sit down and try to complete in one sitting, but this game is sort of the perfect length. I think if you sat down and knew where everything was, would you say an hour and a half, couple hours? Hour and a half, probably. I mean, because you still have to grind out some levels and stuff like that, but there's like a natural progression to it, not just knowing where everything is. Yeah, and I don't remember there ever being sort of a a wall that you hit where you can't... Well, I guess there are a couple places that scare you, like right after you take that uh, that, forced, that first teleporter, and it brings you to that desert area, which is probably my favorite area. The first time I ran into an enemy there, he kicked my ass something fierce, and I was like, oh shit, like... Maybe uh, maybe this game's a little bigger than I anticipated, so I did have to go back and sort of grind up uh, my levels a little bit. But man, it, it's just it's a good length, and it's not it's not a battle kit where it's just way too hard <laughs> to enjoy. Like it's a good difficulty, but it never feels sort of impossible to progress. Well, I like that whole like risk versus reward thing with new areas because if you don't know what you're getting into, it, it felt very. Very much like the first time you're playing one of the classic games that, you know, that you almost wish you could forget just so you could experience again. Yeah. And I don't know. I just really enjoyed that because you get to that the desert or the uh, even the underwater. Like there's certain enemies that you don't know if you can kill or not. Like there's mm-hmm. a, sta- a stationary deal that just kind of like shoots at you. And if you run into it, it just destroys you. And so yeah. you don't you have to lose a couple hearts here and there to sort of discover what the game has in store. And I don't know. I like that. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about, um, you know, when, you, when you're comparing it to Zelda, Zelda sort of has an overworld, and then it has the various levels, the dungeons, and each dungeon sort of has a boss. This game has bosses that are sort of scattered throughout the world, and you're talking about risk versus reward. You know, you see these bosses sort of sitting stationary, just sort of begging you to attack them but you have no idea like how powerful they are you know if they're going to kick your butt so you have to just go for it and then the first time you lose to them you have to decide like how badly did i just lose like is this something i can go just grind a couple levels on and come back or like am i gonna have to keep this guy in the back of my head and come back to him way down the road because there's a lot of bosses and they're all, I don't know, they're all different. And I guess every time you kill one, does it unlock a different thing in, in, in the world somewhere? And then you have to backtrack and figure out where that is. No, they're usually standing in front of like an object blocking you from getting it. So like the very first one, which you encounter pretty quick, he's standing in front of the gem that allows you to move quicker underwater. Mm. And so you can go underwater before that, but you, you move like a slug, you, you get taken out real easy. So you want to you want to sort of take care of him first and it you got to gain a couple levels at least before you can really do that. And so you're sitting there and you're losing a couple hearts on him going, ah, can I make it? Can I not? And <laughs> it, that that continues throughout the rest of the game, uh, especially in the desert where there's, you know, three back to back bosses that you can either choose to fight or not. Right. Yeah, that's where the, I found the shield. The, probably the only time I ever used the shield in the game was right there. Um, oh, OK. Just because I, I was like I was down to like no hearts left, and was like, well, this is gonna be it. If I lose here, it's over. Because I <laughs> went to attack him, and I I didn't do you know a scratch of damage, and was like, uh oh. 
what are we going to do now? And so I rem- thankfully remembered the shield. But anyways, pro tip there. I didn't mean to give away anything. <laughs> well, I think we've given people a pretty good idea of sort of what, you know, how the game plays, sort of what the objective is. We haven't really talked about art specifically, how the game looks, you know, how the characters look. I know we compared it kind of to Zelda in in a sort of vague sense, but how would you describe uh, the sprites or the graphics as a whole? Um, the sprites I found to be a little more intricate than the backgrounds, especially the hero one. Uh, there's some, you know, you have a separate flesh color from the cape color. You can see sort of how they constructed the the player character. And then they do some really neat things. Like when you hit a warp tile, it like bursts your character into like 60 versions of itself as it you know, yeah. spreads across the screen. Something I really wish I'd done in Spookatron, but I did not. <laughs> and like little touches like that were just like, man, this is really like they took some time on this. Uh, it's, it's neat. They could have just, you know, quickly thrown together a three color character like Link and been done with it, but they didn't. Yeah, and I think that's probably, from a programming perspective, that little effect they do when you warp, that's probably the most impressive thing visually uh, in the game. Oh, yeah. I mean, you hit it and you're just like, holy cow, what's just happened there? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. I'm, I need to find a way to use that. <laughs> but overall, I think the graphics, they feel consistent. I know some games, you can tell that multiple artists work on it because maybe the sprite work is really good and the backgrounds are kind of shoddy or vice versa like this game feels good and it feels sort of complete like everything feels on the same level well yeah the art the background art at least is a bit simplistic um it's i'd say it's above zelda but kind of below some other things but as a whole it is consistent with itself and you know once you're actually playing the game you don't even hardly notice because it creates that world that you're able to inhabit Yeah, the gameplay is so fun that it immediately kind of sucks you in and you're invested at that point. And I I don't think that you're so much analyzing art from that point as as much as just enjoying the experience. So the fun factor, I would say, absolutely fantastic. How would you say, replayability-wise, would you say there's a lot of replayability there? Well, I did not make it through the game in the first try. It took me... three or four tries this last time that I played. I mean, I played it a couple years ago, but firing it up this time and trying to get all the way through it. And so, I mean, to be able to, I can only die so many times in Battle Kid before I just turn it off. <laughs> and I know we're always beating. Well, I don't know it, if but, you've heard this, but it's uh, one of the greatest Nintendo games ever made. Oh, yeah, I saw that on the forums today, but we won't get into that. <laughs> Anyways, I don't mean to always pick on it, but it's that difference where it's like, am I dying every 10 seconds and they're just punishing me over and over again? Or like, am I actually, am I dying due to my own like stupidity and not understanding the game itself and, and some skill, but like not an excessive amount of doing everything perfect every time. But anyways, so yeah, in terms of replayability, just getting through it a few times or getting through it once will probably take a few, you know, full game overs. And then after that, like it's still it's still interesting to play uh, sort of like not quite to the extent that Zelda was just because the world's not as big, but uh, it's still interesting to go through it all. You can you don't have to go through it the same way every time. So there's a little extra replayability in that regard. And then there's also a plus game, which was a very nice addition. Yeah, I think the game is short enough and charming enough to where 
you want to come back and sort of play through it again. I don't know. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, I mentioned previously that that the most, I, I probably didn't spell it out that the most memorable location for me was that desert area, but yeah, once I hit that portal and my character sort of exploded into all those little variations of himself and then reappeared in a different place, that's the point where I realized, like, th- like I didn't, my expectations for this game were not, I mean, I didn't have any since I didn't know the damn game existed, but when I hit that portal and it brought me to the desert, it opened my eyes, like, big, like, oh shit, this is gonna be awesome. So yeah, that was my most sort of memorable location. Do you have, like, your most memorable place in the game that comes to mind? Oh, it's interesting you pick the desert because most of the game you can, it's connected like geographically and so you hit those those teleporters and it's like in Link to the Past when you like shoot to the dark world oh. and you're like oh my goodness like there's a whole nother war like extra yeah. stuff to this game that I wouldn't normally That's be able to That's a good comparison. I, it kind of is. It's still like the same overworld and it's still geographically connected but you can't actually reach it without doing the different warps and stuff. So it, well that's actually now that you mention that and bring that to my mind like that is the same feeling that I got back in the day when I was playing Link to the Past and I hit that teleporter and I I think back you know when you first hit it the first time you turn into a rabbit or something but yeah. I was like what the actual fuck just happened <laughs> like I it blew my mind and this game I'd say maybe not quite on the same level as Link to the Past let's be honest but very 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 good yeah, I liked the uh, actually underwater world the most. Um, just something about it. You don't get to go underwater in a lot of games. I mean, like you're always up in an airship or you're sailing around on top of the water, but you never get to go under the water except in like Lufia. And uh, uh, to me, that's just sort of a fun feeling to be in that different area. Yep, for sure. So how was the game actually released when it came out? Um, You know, uh, it's kind of different for... Uh, like, I, I hate to use the word like real indie developer, but somebody who has successfully published indie games and continues to do so for a living. I guess that's a real indie developer to me. <laughs> but they posted online on some various websites and some of the feedback instantly was like, well, you're releasing it on the NES. Thanks, pal. Like, that doesn't help me out. And... <laughs> Like, just these rude, idiotic, you know, forum comments. Never read the comments, especially on on article posts. But, uh, yeah, it was just kind of interesting to see. And, like, you know, people chimed in where, like, you know, this isn't what that's about. Like, this is going to be a physical release. You can buy it on cartridge, and that's it. It's done at that point. So they found a publisher, and it ended up being Pico Interactive, who has done primarily, like... uh, Repros, right? Well... Kind of. They're not repros in the sense of like you or me sticking something onto a cartridge. They're repros and they're more official. He ends up, he goes out and he buys the rights to these so he can officially release them and he sees this as some sort of like, I'm now officially. Yeah, that's his, that's his shtick. Yeah, I mean, but he picks games that have been reproed for years and everybody already has a copy that wants one. So it's like, <laughs> what's the point? But anyways, yeah, he doesn't do a lot of homebrews and Quest Forge was one of the few, Anguna by Nathan Talbert. Um, that was for the Game Boy Advance, though. You pronounced that correctly. I did. It seems like Good we might have you. talked to him and he might have corrected <laughs> me in person. And the, I think that might be about it for like actual homebrews he again mostly does the 
unreleased stuff. But anyways, so he did a special edition, and this was in a nice, like, slick-looking black box. It was in shrink wrap. Um, cartridge was red. They were all hand-numbered on the uh, label. I have number five. I was very quick on this one. Uh, you don't see <laughs> homebrew RPGs every day or kind of RPGs, so I, I jumped on it immediately. And it had a fold-out poster and map of the giant overworld. And yeah, so that sold for like 85 bucks. There were 100 of them. But partway through that sale, they didn't sell out immediately. Like a, It was sort of right at that cusp of things not selling out right away. Plus, he's not able to be on many forums, so the word about the game didn't get out. <laughs> we're just going to leave it at that, man. Um and so yeah they didn't sell out right away i think he was down to like 17 eventually and then one day just all of those disappeared at once because i would check it multiple times a day because i was curious like when it was finally going to sell out and so he started offering sort of a regular edition and this had different artwork kind of a more dragon warrior type artwork uh, yeah it's a gray cartridge i believe i need to get it still i actually saw it in like a local shop back in indiana and was like oh my goodness like that's the weirdest thing the guy was like, you know what that is? And I was like, yes, I know what that is. <laughs> Boy, um, do I. And then he had, you know, amidst Mario hacks, but whatever. So uh, special edition and regular edition, that's all he released, right? If only. <laughs> there was also, after those last 17 copies of the uh, special edition mysteriously vanished all at once, uh, there was something called an overproduction edition. And he ended up taking... You know, when you order parts, you don't get just, if you need a hundred, you don't just get a hundred because either some go bad or it's cheaper just to get, you know, 200 and just throw the rest in the trash or whatever uh, in case you need one. So the overproduction edition was this weird kind of not quite special, special edition that was sort of just cobbled together from whatever leftover parts happened to be around. And so on the website, it said things like may contain map or may contain, you know, a special label. And so it was like, what is really going on here? And to me, like as a variant collector, like that's interesting. It's like, oh, cool. Except, you know, if I've already bought a special edition, I want that to be special. If yeah. I'm going to go ahead and buy the regular edition, I want that to, you know, do as many regular editions as you want. But don't mess with that, like one special edition that I shelled out a bunch of money for. So I... I didn't even pull the trigger on the overproduction, and they got pulled kind of quick. Yeah, and as a homebrew developer, we always, I mean, you have to sort of stay true to your word. I mean, when we release special editions, people are buying those, you know, with the understanding that they're limited. Like, the whole purpose is I'm going to buy this limited thing, and I'm going to have this limited thing, and once they're gone, they're gone, and I'm going to be one of the few that has it. Like... Coming back a week later and saying, oh, just kidding, here's 10 more, like that, you're really betraying trust at that point. Yeah, I've seen it a lot in the homebrew community. I'm not going to name names or any of that, but like every time I see it, it's just like, I think we're done buying from you. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to waste my time. I'll get it secondhand cheaper probably down the line. I'm just not even going to fret because there's no point in signing up day one if you're just going to kind of burn all those who supported you right away. Yeah, it's a shame, but uh, anyways, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't let our own personal feelings interfere with this, uh, this review of everything. I believe this whole podcast is our own personal feelings. Oh, God bless. I know. Who would have thought? <laughs> well, uh, didn't we, uh, are we going to talk to this guy? What's going on? 
Well, so that's the weird thing about Quest Forge is because it was put out by Pico, who doesn't have sort of a great forum presence these days, uh, the developer himself was kind of really not talked about. There's no interviews. There's no information, hardly. Uh, so we are going to kind of talk with uh, the man himself. Uh, his name's Matthias. You there, Matthias? Yes. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, we don't normally get a chance to talk to, I guess, uh, real, in quotes, uh, game programmers. So I guess tell us a little bit about what you've done outside of uh, Nest Development, because you're, you're known for some other things, correct? Yeah, um, I work at an uh, indie studio in Sweden uh, called Ludosity. Uh, we made a couple of games like uh, It'll Do 1 and 2 and Card City Nights, Murray, among others, yeah. I've heard of It'll Do. That's on the it's on the Switch, isn't it? Yeah, the second one is on Switch, yes. Oh wow. That's a uh, that's like big time as compared to <laughs> most of the NES stuff. <laughs> I guess, uh, but we're not really that big. Yeah. Modesty. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess, how is Ludosity sort of structured? Is it uh, you and a couple other people? or Yeah, we're, we're about six people, a uh, couple of programmers, a couple of designers, or just one designer, I guess, uh, and a couple of graphics artists, just doing whatever we feel like, I guess. And where do you <laughs> fit into that? Which part do you do? Oh, I'm, a, I'm mainly a programmer, but I've also taken the... Uh, the task of making all the music for it, for the games. So ah, yeah, okay. Because that was the only, pretty much the only thing that I could sort of find tossed around on the internet was that Quest Forge was done by Ludosity's music programmer, and I was like, well, that's that's yeah. kind of different. Uh, <laughs> to jump from doing music to doing uh, full games, but it's uh, it's the other way around. So oh, jump from programming making music. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah, my, my main duty is uh, programming. Okay, hmm. so how did you get involved with NES development? Huh, let's see. Um, well, I've always been interested in making uh, NES games since uh, it was the first console I owned as a kid. Nice. Uh, and just one day out of the blue, I just realized I've been working as a game developer for, I don't know, a couple of years. And I, I realized that, oh, I can do NES games now. It should be like within my reach. So I just started working on one. And that's basically how I got started. So you said it was your first game system when you were growing up. What, uh, what were some of your favorite games as a kid? Uh, Mega Man were definitely number one for me as I grew up. Uh, I loved renting basically every single one of them that came out in the uh, X series for the SNES as well. Remember specifically uh, Mega Man being like my favorite game for like six, seven years or something. I, I really loved Mega Man, so yeah. Was there a specific Mega Man or just the original Mega Man? No, the second one and the fourth one, I guess, were my favorites. Ah, okay. I'm a three and five guy. Those are the two that <laughs> oh. do for me. Oh. <laughs> when you decided to start uh, trying to actually program for the NES... How did you get started going down that road? I guess I did a Google search <laughs> how to make an NES okay. game. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I remember I came upon a article about programming on the NES in C. Ah. And I felt that that was a good way to get into it. 
since I, I I've been working in C plus plus and C sharp before. So okay, that was one of the things I noticed too about Quest Forge was a lot of people have you know said that full NES games like large games cannot be really done well in C, and then they they usually hold up Quest Forge as hey, but this one was. This is proof that it can be done. Yes, I, I can't see why why not. Actually, <laughs> uh, I had no problems making it in C, and I didn't have problem with optimizing for frame rate or anything like that. So yeah, yeah, it's smooth and fluid. You just have to use uh, the C sparingly, I guess. You have to <laughs> uh, not use the language to its fullest potential, since it wasn't really made for the NES. I guess right. Hmm. So where did, I guess, the, because Quest Forge is not like Mega Man at all. Where did the sort of general ideas for Quest Forge kind of come from? Uh, I started making a, an RPG. I, I do love the RPG genre now, uh, even though I liked Mega Man, as you said, as a kid. Uh, RPGs are my main, my, my favorite genre now, today. Uh, so I wanted to make a big RPG that was vast and crazy, but it was kind of difficult to do on the NES. So well, I guess, I guess I tried to make a, a big, cool RPG f- at first, but then I realized uh, that it wouldn't work. And I started developing for the uh, Atari 2600 uh, in the middle, in between projects. Jeez. Uh, and I made uh, QuestForge 2 for the Atari before QuestForge 1 came out. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, so <laughs> QuestForge 2 came first. <laughs> Is that out? Yeah, well, it's not on cartridge, but you can find it to download the ROM and play. Ah, interesting. I know what I'm doing later. <laughs> <laughs> but but when I made that, I had to obviously uh, make the project uh, lesser of scope, like uh, focus it, since the Atari 2600 can't do much, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that's where I came up with the idea of just walking into enemies like in Ease games and uh, games like that, uh, but adding that the chicken race mechanic, I guess. Yeah. They have to push a button before you touch the enemy as late as possible, but not too late. And when I made, uh, after I made the game for uh, Atari 2600, I went back and redid the project for the NES uh, to fit that oh. uh, that model and scope. And, and uh, that helped making the game like come true, I guess. Like uh, the scope got more narrow and I could do it. <laughs> So the limitations then sort of helped you to sort of refine and get the project finished. Yeah, exactly. I think the way that you have to press the button as you run into the enemies to sort of determine how, you know, how how much power you have when you're hitting them. That's one of my favorite parts of the game. Um, is that is that mechanic used in any other games or is that something that you just came up with on your own? I think I came up with it myself That's really uh, as, I, cool. as i said i i base it off ease and uh, what's it called hydlide i guess oh, really yeah. NES, where you just run into enemies and just added one little mechanic to that see i've never liked that system but i really like it in quest forge it seems to just work very well with the the stats and everything yeah yeah for sure the other thing that i think i like most about the game is that um you know, the enemies spawn in like a static location on each screen. So you can kind of go back and forth between screens and, and grind on different enemies, you know, that give between three or six experience per kill. Um, was this, was it done intentionally to like allow you to grind easily to get up in power? Uh, no, I think 
that's basically a um, a optimization for for the data. Uh, I think there are only a couple of spawn uh, shapes or like uh, preset positions. So the game, I don't know how many the game uses, but it's only a couple. So uh, huh. it's basically from that. I never noticed. Uh... I didn't either. So <laughs> you did good. <laughs> Fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> I, rem- I remember when making the game, I sometimes made a screen and then realized, oh, n- none of the f- um, patterns fit this, so I have to ma- remake uh, the screen. Ah, <laughs> oh, huh. Enemies would spawn in the, in the walls and stuff. And it is one of the sort of lengthier NES homebrews out there. And then you went so far as to also do a plus game. How? What was the process of for like expanding your normal game to include a plus game? Uh, the I'm not really that proud of the of the plus game. The plus game was actually like a request from our from the publisher oh. who made the cartridge to make it longer. He thought it was too short. So really, <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So I don't know. I only had uh, like a hundred or like oh man, I don't remember. I didn't have much space left. So all I did was like shift all the enemy stats like two steps to the right and just randomize the colors of the palettes and stuff <laughs> it's not it's not really much the the plus game it's just there for fun <laughs> are there any secrets in the game that a lot of people don't know about well there is a secret room in the game with a bit code pattern ah and if you if you actually uh, deciphered the the code uh, we would give you it'll do two for free on steam <laughs> but only two or three people actually re- registered on that on the it led to a web page and then you had to input your email and then we sent out keys oh interesting very random but yeah which area is that hidden room in are you willing to reveal that yeah it's in the desert on okay. the right wall that's that's right where i got stuck <laughs> Oh, did you get stuck in the wall? Yeah, earlier oh, today. That's, that's the only <laughs> place in the game I didn't find that that room switching wall thing. Uh, well, that says something that at least that many people have played it and also found the secret. I mean, that's more than a lot of us get uh, with, with some of the stuff that we slide in there and hope that people find someday. <laughs> yeah. we, we're kind of kind of... Well, I guess famous for having lots of secrets in our games in Atlodosity, so we, we we always try to fit something in at least. Nice. So I guess when you started working kind of in the beginning, which you kind of already mentioned that with Quest Forge at least, you went from the process of uh demaking it to the twenty six hundred and back and that sort of helped refine things. But when you have approached uh, NES development with other projects. Do you begin with the limitations and then try to fit your idea or try to take build an idea on top of that? Or do you start with an idea and then sort of work to fit it within the restraints? What's the uh, kind of give and take there? Uh, I guess I start with the, with the idea, but I'm very open to change it to fit the uh, optimization and, and limitations. Uh, and usually... A bit into the project, the limitations will control the game more and more. Yeah, I guess that's the, the general flow. Um, did you have like a specific mapper that you chose for this project, or kind of how did you go about that process of uh, working with the hardware side? You mean like the uh, working with the cartridge? 
Well, like when you started creating the project, did you have a mapper in mind and a certain board you were going to use or did it sort of go the other way? Well, um, the C um, tools I used uh, or the there's a, there's a library uh, you can download from Shiro. He's called on the internet. Ah, yes. It's free to use. That's um, uh, public domain, basically. And uh, uh, that one only supports the smallest uh, cartridges. So the... NROM? Uh, yeah, the NROM 256, I guess it's called. Oh, I didn't know that. Neither of us, neither Kevin or I do programming in C, so I, wasn't, I was not aware of that. Yeah, so that's basically the only one I use. I haven't... Uh, I plan, I, I want to make games for bigger mappers um, or uh, bigger cartridges, but I haven't really delved into that yet. So, How long did the development take of the game from start to finish? Uh, I guess about like, oh, wait, it was very quickly, actually. Like the weekends for like three months, maybe two months. Oh, wow. Just weekends, huh? Yeah, actually, because <laughs> uh, since I made the game for uh, before and then restarted the project, I knew what I wanted to make. So it went on quite fast, actually, quite quickly. Were all the graphics done ahead of time or does, does that include the graphics being created? Yeah, I think we took like two weeks afterwards to make the, the manual artwork and uh, the box art and stuff like that. Nils, uh, the, the graphics artist on the project, made those. Yeah. But yeah. He made graphics as we went along with the game, uh, hmm. starting with the first area, and then we did it in order, I guess. Was there one aspect of making the game that was the most challenging? I guess fitting the, the game on the actual cartridge. I remember <laughs> we don't have that much space left in the, in the project file. There's just a couple of hundred bytes or something, I think. Wow. Jeez, that's tight. Did you use any tools to help with like level layout or did you just sort of program it straight in the state? I made a, I think the level editor is Photoshop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just basically made a grid and then uh, used four different shades of gray to map out the levels. And then I copied the rooms and I made a parser that would parse the BMP, the bitmap data. Uh, wow. So that's uh, it could find rooms that were similar and stuff and, and merge them so they were one and the same design. So I didn't have to have similar copies and stuff like that. So many rooms are, as you might have noticed, the exact same layout. I did not notice. Yeah, I didn't oh, either. Didn't? Wow. Okay. No, jeez. <laughs> man, you, you cut some corners just like they did in the, the original Zelda, but you cannot tell. That's, that's awesome. Uh, well, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, so you mentioned Nils, right? Uh, he did the graphics and stuff. Who else, I guess, sort of helped with the project and what were their kind of roles in it? Well, Nils uh, works at Lilosity as well. And we're all kind of like retro uh, focused. We really, really, really love retro games. Um, so basically everyone there helped at, at some point, in some way. Uh, the designer tested the game and threw complaints at me and the... <laughs> <laughs> Other graphics artists uh, helped with uh, like one enemy and like some tiles for the underwater area, I think. And yeah, is this part of like your guys' uh, official like collected works as a as a group? Or I, I guess it actually is, but we don't really push it. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that's a lie because in in a card game, Card City Knights, there are actually a couple of cards 
uh, that are enemies and stuff from Questforge. Really? Nice. So the mo- the moose enemy is a card in Card City Nights 2. And I hate that moose. <laughs> <laughs> and the doe looking people are also a card. I like yeah. that. They're okay. But that moose, he moves way too erratically. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good. It's at the end of the game, so. What was the beta testing process like? Was it just people from Ludosity that helped test it, or did you bring in other people? Uh, it was mainly just people at Ludosity. Uh, I remember I brought it to my cousin once, and he tried it out. But that's basically it. Yeah, a couple of people only tested it, so about three, four people. Did you grow up with the people in Ludosity, or did you meet them as like an adult? Yeah, as an adult. Okay. I did not grow up with them. And you guys are all in Sweden? Yeah, we're based in, in a town called Kovde, uh in the middle of... Oh, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say the middle of Sweden, but yeah, it's not really in the middle of Sweden. Uh, it's all sort of a vague winter wonderland to me. Yeah. <laughs> way up north, way over there. So I guess, is there anything in hindsight that you would have done differently with the game? Or are you pretty happy with it? Or what are your kind of final thoughts on it? Well... I guess the game is kind of amateurish. No way. Amateurish. No way. Uh, well, I think so because because uh, I can do. I think I can do much more with the the forty k of that cartridge, and I want to try and, and and make something bigger and better. I think you need more than forty k. No, it's it's cool to work with just forty k. <laughs> <laughs> you Enrom guys, I'll never understand. There's a bunch of you out there. Really? Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of people that, is, you know, it, it, it makes sense. To, it's like, a, you know, digital art. You're fitting stuff within those constraints and you're doing the best possible thing that you could within the limitations. And, and it's great. But some of these games it's like, man, I just want a little more. Like, I'll take as much as I can get. And if 40K maxes that out, then let's get rid of that. <laughs> I actually think, like, the, the most fun to do in the project is to, to like, optimize the data and stuff. That sounds so nerdy. No. But yeah. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> oh, so you were nice enough to sort of let us take a look at some of your backburner and unfinished projects. Why did you end up pursuing QuestForge over those? Did they come before or after? Or I guess, why did QuestForge pull ahead? I guess it's because it was so focused, the, the scope of the project. It was so simple, the, the run into enemies, that development was rapid enough uh, so that I didn't like lose interest. Hmm. That's why it was uh, <laughs> it was made. I think uh, the other projects I started making are a bit more like undefined, uh-huh. so it takes yeah. a much 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 longer time to make uh, make a game when you don't really know what you're making. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So the game was produced and distributed by Pico Interactive. Um, did he approach you guys to sell the game or did you sort of just like look up who sells NES games and, and send him a message? Like how did that whole uh, thing transpire? I think actually he con- contacted us. I don't know really how. How the hell did he know? <laughs> Wait, I-, I can't really remember actually how. Well, I guess it was the Jenny Tiger prototype. Oh, yeah. Because that came out before QuestForge. That was a thing we did at Ludosity for a game jam. There was some kind of game jam where you had to make something that looked like an NES game, but we made an actual, actual NES game. Hell yeah. Oh, neat. I remember seeing that article. They did an article on it on RetroCollect, and it was like, wow, who is doing this? They, they have no contact with anybody. Like, where does this come from? 
we're we're a bunch of shy nerds in Sweden, just tinkering on our games and just releasing them. <laughs> so, what's the state of Quest Forge now that it's sort of been discontinued from Pico? Uh, is it you, what comes next? I guess. Well, as I said, I made the Atari Twenty Six Hundred game before too, and then I made a 3D one for a game jam in 64 by 64 resolution that's up on Ichio, I guess it's called. Uh, I've started working on a, another Quest Forge game for the Atari 2600. Uh, there I wanted to go the other way around. I wanted to make a bit the biggest cart possible, so the 8-bank <laughs> 2600 Atari cartridge. I want to make the biggest, coolest Atari game, I guess. Is that going to be Quest Forge 3? No, that's 5. <laughs> Uh, and I started shit. six on Commodore 64. <laughs> wow. So is there any chance of you bringing any more Quest Forge to the NES? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm actually you. working on the um, the first version of Quest Forge. I rebranded it and called it Quest Forge Zero, and I'm, I'm planning Ooh. on trying to make that. That's exciting. A little, a little Earthbound thing going there with the Zero. I like that. <laughs> I'll be first in line when that comes Same. Out. All right. We can't both be first. Well, then it'll be a bloodbath. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any plans to do any other non-Quest Forge uh, games for the NES? Or is this sort of your main focus? Well, the Quest Forge series sort of became like my Hello World project. So every time I, I try and make something for another console, I always like start a Quest Forge project on that console. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I absolutely want to do more NES stuff. So you said you're a musician, right? Yes. What sort of musical training, I guess, did you have growing up, or is this something you just sort of picked up that you had a knack for? Uh, I had no training at all. That's awesome. I, I offered to do the music for It'll Do One at Ludosity, uh because we needed music, and uh, the boss said, yeah, and then I made some music. <laughs> you did the music for Quest Forge? Yeah, I did the music for Quest Forge. Has anyone told you that the opening theme in the first area sounds a lot like Papa Don't Preach like Madonna. Oh my god. Uh, did you come up with that yourself? Yeah. Okay. Damn, you're the second person. My boss <laughs> says that. Yeah. <laughs> I never would have guessed. Start singing Papa Don't Preach every time the game <laughs> song, so damn it. That's awesome. I, I did not realize as I made it. No, it's awesome. I'm not. I'm definitely not uh, You know, giving you a hard time. I think it's great. <laughs> So which uh, song are you going to end up playing, Kevin? Uh, well, I guess I have to play that one now, now that I've uh, told people it sounds like Madonna. I guess you do. Go for it. Thanks for coming on, Matthias. And <laughs> we are going to listen to the Area 1 track for Quest Forge. Thanks again. Thank you.
All right, so you have that in your head now. Da, 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 da. I'm going to play you the melody from Papa Don't Preach. I'll probably play the pre-chorus into the chorus just to set it up a little bit. Now, Quest Forge does it sort of twice as long. It does that little sort of refrain four times, and I think Papa Don't Preach only does it twice and then does uh, a little bit of a key change. But I'll play that now, and then afterward, I think I'll break down the two sections just so you can hear them back to back. So that was Papa Don't Preach by Madonna, just uh, showing you guys how similar it may or may not be to uh, the Overworld song from Quest Forge. May uh, not. You know, I'll let the listeners decide for themselves, but uh, you know what side of the fence I'm on. <laughs> um, but what have you been like? It's been so not only has it been so long since we've done an episode. But it's been even longer because we recorded this entire episode and then lost the audio. So it feels like forever. But catch us up on what the hell you've been up to lately. There are a lot of things that I did not want to do when releasing a game. Walk us through it. Walk us through it. Especially when it was my own game and not publishing somebody else's. Which, you know, publishing somebody else's, you get the stress of like, trying to make them happy and trying to like do right by them and all that. But when it's your own game, you get all of that. Plus like the added bonus of like feeling like a constant success or constant failure. And <sighs> so I shipped like 30 copies of Spookatron and everything was great. And I was like, Oh, I just have to hit print. <laughs> I got to get a bit more ink and then I can hit print and I'll have the rest of my manuals and everything will be out. And, I can get rid of these 70, you know, regular editions, and then I can build these other editions that I have all the equipment and all the supplies for. The train was moving. Oh, the train was moving. And... The train stopped. (laughs) (laughs) The train, like, didn't stop. It, like, derailed, crashed, burned, burned again, and then, like, it was dive-bombed by things. And the worst part is... Is that like sense that you finally got this figured out and then nothing works out. And so like my printer just stopped printing one day. And so I ordered all new parts and it did the same exact thing. And it's not like you, it's not like you ordered third party parts. Like you talk to HP itself, right? No, I definitely ordered third party parts. This is, we are no longer with HP. (laughs) Yeah. And so like I ordered the same stuff that I did before and everything should have worked. And of course it didn't. So I am in the perhaps most terrible position of like not even not shipping people stuff, but 
not shipping some, but shipping other people their stuff, which is like 10 times worse because people are just pissed. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were waiting for a Kickstarter reward and you saw other people getting theirs, you would assume, assume yours is on the way. And when you find out it's not, yeah, you could be a little pissed off. Well, and I completely get it. And it completely doesn't help me with the reality of not knowing. I don't want to say like not knowing how to finish it, but not being able to. And it's just stressful. Like, I I just want to be done with this project. I've wanted to be done for almost a year now, which is why I did a Kickstarter in the first place. And I learned a lot and all that. But in the end, I just have this like weight of getting people their stuff. And it is stressful. So that's what's been going on with me. Life is difficult. How are you? Bo, let me tell you how I am. You're wonderful. I already know it. I can... Gritting my teeth. <laughs> Do you know when a bear goes into hibernation and it gets that whole season of rest? And yeah, that's it not really how out, that works. You just shut up and let me talk about this. The bear comes out and he's fucking hungry, man. And he wants to eat. <laughs> that's what's going on right now. <laughs> but man, like nothing, like everything, every project I had been working on was like sort of at an impasse. Like, I can't do the networking stuff in Unicorn. I can't do, I don't have the talent to do the graphics for my Larry sequel. I, I, I'm waiting on graphics from MT for isolation, but I don't have any money to pay him anyway. So like, it doesn't matter. Like (laughs) all this stuff is at a standstill. And like, I'm just thinking to myself, like, what can I do? And then from the heavens, a ray of light shines down upon me and angels start singing and everything starts to fall into place for everything at the same time. It's really bizarre. So I hate you so much. Well, you know, I'm sure I'm sure my train too will come off the rails at some point and burst into flame twice. I don't know how that happened. But like things happened when we were at Magfest. Um, you know, we go there and we hang out with the guys from retrotainment and we talk about the haunted games and we hang out with greg we hang out with tim we hang out with zach and those guys are like the best dudes but getting to talk to them you know zach he's working on the graphics for full quiet but he like he's starting to get into this homebrew thing and he's like man like i want some other stuff to work on do you have anything that like i could do graphics for and i'm thinking to myself you know like I have this Larry project that, like, the story is written for, but graphics are what's holding me back from doing it. Like, maybe he would kind of be awesome to, like, see, you know, maybe what he could bring to the table here. So I sent him over the script um, to Larry, too, and he sent me some sort of uh, some spec graphics, and I kind of loved it, man. Like, it wasn't maybe what I would have done, but that's that's what made it so awesome. Like it's a fresh take, but it still works. So I was like, let's do this. So, um, we got together some, you know, some, some details of, of what we both wanted to to get from the project. And he's, he's officially working on it now. He sent me, I think four screens now and they're all looking awesome. So Four? Um, You've only shown me two. Well, That's awesome. I can't, uh, you know, a magician can't reveal all his, all his tricks. 
even though I oh, guess I'm what not, tricks do you I'm have? not the magician in this metaphor, so scrap that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll show you. But yeah, man, they're they're really good. And uh, there's a specific detail. I don't think I want to give this away just yet. I think I want it to be a surprise. But there's something unique that he's doing with the graphics um, that I've never seen done before uh, on the NES. So uh, that'll Ooh. be exciting to look forward to. Color me intrigued. If that wasn't enough, like that in itself is exciting. Like I can finally do this project that I'm so passionate about, but there's another project that I've been working on for even longer. Gatsby? Bo, keep hoping, my friend. (laughs) No, Unicorn. So back in, right after I finished uh, Frogger back in 2009, I decided I wanted to do this port of an old bbs game and i don't know how many of you guys used bbs's back in the day but it was a a way for your computer to dial into other computers and sort of chat with them. yeah it was, it was a precursor to the internet but there were games that people made but they had to be very sort of i don't want to say archaic but they had to be very creative in the ways that they made these online games because you weren't necessarily playing with a bunch of people at the same time you would play your turn and then you would log off the computer and then another person would play their turn so it was online but in a sense to where it was kind of single player with extras um but i wanted to make a port of this game that i used to play on these systems from back in the day called legend of the red dragon but I got the game done, but I couldn't quite figure out how to do this online part. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast a little bit. I was working with Memblers to sort of make this happen. But, you know, the two of us ran into some roadblocks, and I just figured that the project was dead. And I had completely cast this idea out of my brain as something that was going to happen. Um, I just figured it was done. It wasn't going to happen. It wasn't a possibility. Online stuff for the NES is just too hard to figure out. But somehow it came up um, in, in our Discord chat in the brewery section, and I just said, you know, like, this was something I was working on. It's not happening. It kind of sucks because I would really love it to happen. Some really smart people chimed in and sort of took an interest to the idea of what I was trying to pull off. So we've been working on this. There's four of us now. Well, I guess there's five of us. And I don't know that I want to spoil like who's sort of in on the on the fun right now. I want to maybe wait and make a, a sort of big announcement on this. But not because you don't appreciate their help. God, no. Like, I'm literally living the dream right now. Like, every day, there's like tangible things being done to like make this a reality. And every, even the tiny steps are like such a huge boost to my confidence and just my happiness because it's something that I literally thought was dead and it's coming to life right now before my eyes. So, God, it, guys, I know you're listening. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll reveal who you are soon, but I want to do it in a special way. So, yeah, Unicorn happening. Online NES game happening. So... Stay tuned. Um, Larry, Unicorn, like two of my biggest like passion projects are coming to life. So I'm super excited and I haven't been this excited in a long time about my own personal stuff that I'm working on. So uh, happy to reveal that to everyone. Anyway, I think I just took 10 minutes with my answer, but that's what I've been up to, Bo. Nah, man, like 
I still encounter images or the one image of unicorn like on a weekly basis when I do my internet searches for various things. And how long ago did you first see that image? Like, I've been working on this game for so long. Uh, when I first started getting into things, you, the RetroCollect article on Unicorn was one of the things that got me into homebrewing and NES homebrewing in particular, because it said on the article, homebrew RPG, and I was like, oh man, somebody's <laughs> making an RPG. I could, I want to do this. I want to be part of this thing that that's happening, and... It's just awesome to see it finally coming together because I, I know you've done so much work for it. Dave, who did the original graphics, he did so much work for it. Like you guys had this thing going and it's always sort of been hindered by technology and to see that that technology to catch up, not just for unicorn, but for all of us, for anything that we want to do is just, it's just great to see. Yeah. And what's, super extra great about it. I'm just going to keep throwing adjectives in front of it because I'm just so happy. Um, super extra ultra. Yes, great. ultra for sure. Like what even as far as my vision was for Unicorn as far as like the things that I wanted to do that sort of haven't been done before. If that wasn't enough, they're taking stuff even beyond what I could have imagined. So like some of the things... I can't wait to share this stuff with you guys. Some of the things that they're doing, I literally hadn't imagined before. So you guys are really in for a treat. And I'm going to, I guess, back up and say, you know, if we can all pull this off, it's going to be a treat. But like, I really think, I really think with as fast as things are moving, man, it's going to be awesome. And I can't wait to share this, just this experience of playing this online with you guys. It's going to be great. It's weird. I personally have never played an online game, and so it's special to me that my first online game will be an NES game. <laughs> oh, I man. know. I, no, I'm not, I'm not laughing because I'm making fun of you. Like I'm just laughing because like I just can't believe it's going to happen, finally. So, um, <laughs> it's, I know it, it probably sounds cheesy to everyone listening. Oh, no, we, we queued up the 8-bit tier music like <laughs> three minutes ago, so you're good. All right, but seriously, enough about me. Forget me, forget Unicorn, forget Larry. There's been other stuff going on in the community. Um, Some really great stuff. There has been. And I'm just going to go ahead and and jump off. I'm going to start this list right. Bring the excitement. Well, not only am I going to be excited about this, I know you are, because you've said on numerous episodes of this podcast, this new homebrew that's going to come out, and that is out, and that's shipping our way right now, is potentially going to be your favorite game of all time on the NES. Lizard is done. You can download it right now if you back the Kickstarter. I shall We're not. waiting for cartridges. Yeah, I'm waiting to play this thing on my Nintendo, man. Like, send it my way. But finally, finally, Brad finished it, um, and people are playing it, and the response so far has been magnificent um so yeah that's out now bo how do you feel about that oh you know i remember where i was when the kickstarter was funded (laughs) this is like the jfk assassination like you remember where you were it was back into the left um (laughs) no because it got funded (laughs) i'm glad you appreciate the seinfeld references (laughs) It's not a Seinfeld reference, it's a JFK reference in Seinfeld. Whatever, man. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, no, it got funded on my birthday back in like 2015 or something. And to me, it was just like, I remember when it, it launched and like that day, it was just like, this is the coolest game that I've ever seen on the NES. And so I played the demo and I've played the demo several times since even this past year in 2017, I took the time to like get everything I possibly could in the demo. And it's just such an amazing game. And I have, based on that experience, like my hopes are so high that I'm sure it can only disappoint them. <laughs> but I am glad to finally see it be shipped uh, three years later. Well, which I, is not a problem to me personally, but I know no, some have had issues but with it. To that point, like. I think one thing that sets this game, and maybe Brad as a developer, um, sets him apart from the other projects that have come out in the past. I I think personally, and and maybe I can't speak for everyone, but I, I think personally as a developer, I have, when I get excited about something and I want to sort of get a game out, like there's a sense of urgency that I, I can't wait to finish this so people can play it like it can experience it and and maybe some things in in that way are rushed because we just want to get it out brad took the time and he didn't even care how long it took like he he took the time because he had a vision of how he wanted this to to to, to play out and look and i think he took the time to polish this game to a level that i think perhaps some of the other homebrews that have come out in the past they just don't reach you know this game it just looks beautiful i get people asking me on a monthly basis where's their kickstarter reward and i'm like three months late he's like three years late and i can't even imagine like the crap that he gets from people and i'm not saying like crap like in a negative way but just when you know that you owe people something and you're late like it feels like crap even if it's not so oh, I, I can't even imagine, but I uh, think what what works in his favor is he can point to this game and say, yeah, I was three years late, but look at what you're getting now. Like, this is far and away past the level that when I first set out to do this, I sort of promised you guys. Like, I'm I'm presenting you guys with this shit. Like, it's on another level. So, it may be delayed, and I I may have given him crap in the past for that <laughs> fact, but looking at what he's done, like I I can't do that. Like he I can't do what he's done. So uh, who am I to give him any crap? Like Brad, Ooh. you're the man. To to replace Legacy of the Wizard in my catalog of favorite games is hmm, what I thought to be an unachievable task. <laughs> I'm excited to get the cartridges in the mail. Like I, I can't wait to play through it. So um, I'm sure everyone listening has also pledged to that back in the day. And if you haven't, um, Google that shit, man. Like Lizard looks awesome. <laughs> um, and I think he's selling it now on his website. But if, if not, I'm sure you can Google and find out where that is. Um, he's got the ROM for sale right now. It's like 10 bucks or something. And then once backer rewards are shipped, uh, regular edition will be available. So just, you know, wait a month or so, get the game of the NES's lifetime. Yep. So says Well, Bo. maybe. <laughs> he, made some, he made some changes that I'm not like a huge fan of, potentially, but yeah. that's because I haven't played the original one and I like the demo so much. So that, that's a personal 
thing, and I hope to be very, very wrong come any day now. Yeah, we'll find out soon. But other things have been going on. I mean, as big as that is, there's some other stuff. Um, our good friend Tim from Orb Games, who did Tailgate Party, he actually started a homebrew gaming competition. Is that right? Uh, the HBPC, Homebrew Players Competition. No, home. yeah, Homebrew Players Competition. <laughs> I don't think that's it. That definitely is it. Okay, yes. you're right, you're right. I didn't think that was enough words. Sass me, young man. <laughs> didn't think that was enough words. Um, but the second phase of that competition just ended, uh, and the second game was streamers, right? Yeah, so what he has done is for the 12 months of the year, he has chosen 12 games with some sort of high score emphasis, and you have to play them, post your high score, and you can get points, and you can get prizes done by the wonderful MT and his excellent art. Yeah. He does postcards of the art. Yeah, no, and his he sort of does these original interpretations of, you know, some aspect of the game. Um, the first game in the competition was Study Hall. MT did a really freaking cool uh, graphic of, you know, in the game you're a stick figure, but he sort of he sort of took that environment that I sort of created in very simplistic terms in the game and really brought it to life. Um, so I'm very thankful that he's taken the time to sort of do some original illustrations for each game, uh, each month. Uh, so if you haven't started, uh, taking part of this and you want to, um, in the gamers gauntlet sub forum of Nintendo age, you can check it out each month. He gives you 15 days to play the game in question and then 15 days to sort of prepare for the next game coming up. Uh, and March's game is chunk out two. So if you want to be a part of that and you don't have the game yet, you can buy it at RetroUSB.com. Um, he is, uh, he's put them back in stock now. So buy the game. It'll ship to you. And come March 1st, uh, we can get down on some chunk out. Yeah, that's one of the great things about the competition so far is it's not only gotten people playing the games that have been sitting on their shelf. Because, I mean, let's face it, like a lot of the homebrews, they have appealed in the past more to collectors. People buy them just to like have them. But this competition is really designed to have you pull them off the shelf, blow them off, and then, you know, of course, insert them into your NES. <laughs> and it does no damage. And don't quote me on that. And um, asterisk. Yeah, there's definitely an asterisk <laughs> there. And yeah, so like it's also gotten them back into stock for some places like Retro USB that like Chunkout Two has been out of stock for what two years or something. It's been a while for sure. It's been a long freaking while. But Brian has been gracious enough to put it back into circulation for us. But uh, one more thing that's been really cool about the competition, like typically when you think of, you know, people contributing to actually playing the homebrews, then the numbers don't seem that high. Um, but there's been a really good turnout for this competition. People are really, uh, really playing the games and, and posting about it. It's been really fun. Oh, the weirdest thing, too, has been the people that are like, well, I went to go buy the game and then I realized it was on my shelf and I just needed to like play it finally. And it was like, yeah, dude, like I'm with you because I have a lot of games I have never hardly even played. So it makes perfect sense. It's as good a time as any for sure. <laughs> Tim has also chosen sort of a variety of games with the competition. Each one's from a different developer. He tried to hit as many genres as possible as long as they had some sort of 
high score element and yeah it's a lot of fun uh even if you're not good at every month like i sucked at the first two maybe <laughs> month three you'll be a little better yeah i was telling tim today like i didn't i didn't have time to uh actually sit down and submit a score for streamers but he said that my study hall scores carrying me so i'm pretty stoked about that you fool my participation points for the lowest possible score will carry me <laughs> Oh man. Um but another news, Derek from Gradual Games, uh he took um the ROMs from his first couple games and actually made them publicly available for free online. Yeah, uh, so that'd be uh, Legends of Alia and Namalo Storm in the Castle, the remastered version currently the offered on Ca- uh, Thank you. <laughs> um uh, I'm always so worried about saying Namalos correct or Nomalos. That I forget about Catzel. That's um, okay. Yeah, you're, you're a cat knight. Uh, it makes sense. And he named it after his cat Solomon. That's the Solomon spelled backwards. Nomalos. Oh, I know. I love it. It's the best, man. Yeah, but those are now available for free online. If you've been curious about those games and haven't wanted to pay to check them out, please do so. And that's gradualgames.com, right? Yeah, gradualgames.com. And if you really like them, Go ahead and buy that cart and uh, support a brewer. Absolutely. Who does some of the finest work in the community. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about a guy that's doing it for all the right reasons. Like, that dude is the dude. Like, if you want to support a guy that's literally living his dream, like, that that's the dude. <laughs> well, and Derek also, he released a public utility called Gradual Game Sound, which is sort of an alternative to fam- uh, Shearer's Famitone. And he has now updated GG Sound to be sort of current with everything. So uh, if you're a brewer and you're looking for a sound engine, be sure to check that out. Uh, Derek's still updating it. It's not dead. And yeah, it's alive and well. Yeah, he's doing a really good job of sort of staying on top of that. Like as as people's needs change and as sort of technology changes, he's he's always trying to update it to give everyone, you know, the, the tools that they need to uh, to do what they want. Well, he told me before that he had considered abandoning it since Famitone had become so, like, good. But I, you know, he's a musician. I think he's seen some things that he feels could be done better, and he's corrected them as he sees fit. Yeah, so we do appreciate that. I haven't actually used it yet. I've been using, I've been on the Famitone wagon for some time now. Um, but I'm excited. I think excited. I'm going to use GG Sound for my next game. Yeah, uh, I do want to try it out. It's a little, little different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in other news, Zelius, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that right. It's X Zelius X E L I U S. I'm going with Zelius. Tomato, tomato, my friend. <laughs> he started posting, and I think he does live streams of programming tutorials for the NES online. I think he does them on Twitch, um, but he takes those Twitch broadcasts and he posts them on YouTube. So you can check out these NES programming video tutorials. Uh, And to my knowledge, that's never been done. People have talked about doing them. I've wanted to do them in the past because people have stressed that they don't learn very well just from sort of reading. They would benefit more from you know seeing people do these things in action and maybe following along so he's taken the time um and i think he's posted five videos right now I th- he might have done the sixth one tonight but yeah he's taken the time and they're like an hour and a half long each he's going into detail you know at a slow pace and explaining along the way how to make an nes game so if you don't learn well from reading and you want to just sort of see someone doing it check it out 
you can simply search for NES programming number one, um, and it's called Introduction to NES Hardware. He starts at the very, very beginning. You know, you don't have to have any experience to get something out of this. Um, and if, you know, if Bo and I are any indication, you, you really don't need any prior knowledge. Um, <laughs> you, you just need a willingness to want to do something cool. So if you have a desire to make an NES game, check out the tutorial and stick with it, man. Like we're around if you have questions you want to ask us and the community as a whole, like they're so nurturing now, like everyone just wants to see everyone else do well. So seriously, if if you have any desire to do it, um, check that out. One of the neatest things in the community, and I'm going to speak from personal experience on this is having game genie codes made for your game. How weird is that? <laughs> yeah, chalk that up under things you never thought would happen. Like, back in the day, it was so cool to, like, put the Game Genie on Mario and make him jump, you know, higher than the screen or, you know, make him invincible. Like, to know that you made a game that someone took the time to make Game Genie go- codes for, it's freaking awesome. Yeah, there's a couple of guys who have been, well, one's been doing this for years and one has sort of been doing this for about a year. And Hybrid was the original, like, I'll make game genie codes for everything. And he's just been a champ with all this. Anytime a ROM's released, that's pretty much his first post is to making these cool game genie codes. And his posts are so hilarious. Like he doesn't type, Hey, like check this out. I made some game genie codes for this game. His posts are literally infinite lives code jump high code. (laughs) Like it's just a list. He doesn't even like intro it. He's like, here it is. Well, he's such a friendly guy, too, so it just <laughs> contrasts so well. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, but the, the other guy is named Bacteria Mage. He's sort of come into the scene lately, especially with homebrews. And he he's the one who did uh, Codes for Spookatron, which I was pretty impressed with to, like, find. I was like, who would even care, like, enough to do this? And, yeah. So, if you want to break all of my hard... <laughs> Hard-fought design decisions. Please use these codes. It won't affect me and my well-being at all. (laughs) He also made some codes for the incident, um, and it took me by surprise because um, a lot of the interaction I get on Twitter, it's usually just like people liking a tweet or maybe retweeting me. Um, But this guy out of nowhere tweeted at me, and he's like, hey, made some Game Genie codes for the incident. Check out my website. I explain them. And he goes into like, great detail of each code um like explaining how he edited the you know the addresses and what the code does and sort of the the process that he went through for each one and i had never seen someone take so much uh i don't even want to say pride in what he did but like he took the time to show the extent that he went to for each thing so i thought that was really cool and i really appreciated it Ah, the weirdest thing to me is that if you asked me to make Game Genie codes for my own game, I could not tell you how (laughs) in any way. Like, I I mean, I can conceptually like be like, oh, you modify these bits of RAM or ROM or something. But like beyond that, I have no freaking clue. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's almost magic, man. And for those guys that are good at it, like they really make it look easy. Um, but yeah, I, I have no idea either. I, I actually read an article, um, Dane, the, the founder of Nintendo age, the evil overlord himself, the evil overlord, um, at one point was interviewed cause he had some knowledge of how to make game genie codes. And I don't remember the website that interviewed him, but he detailed like how it's done. And I read that 
And even after reading that, I, I still can't conceptualize how it's done. So hats off <laughs> to the people that do that stuff, man. It's awesome. The man who called my AVS book too technical. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Anyways, yeah. Uh, so another thing, well, we were at MAGFest, which we talked about earlier. I hate to kind of admit this, but I decided to play one of my own games, a game that I published, that I reprogrammed, that I've tested for hours on end, Zero to X, which is a kind of a 2048 clone. Why do you hate admitting it? Because you're playing your own game? I hate admitting it because I completely ignored this guy who I'm kind of a big fan of because I was so into my own game that I could play it anytime I wanted. And <laughs> the one like kind of out that I have with all that is that I got my highest score ever, which is double X and like I I did amazing. Hell I, yeah. I just I'm magical, what can I say? <laughs> but um, during this process, a guy by the name of Joel uh, Albino, he runs the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo, which I went to for a couple of years ago. He came up and started talking to me, and I just, uh, I still feel so bad. I just kind of completely ignored him because... You got zero X to play, man. Come on. Yeah, dude. I was doing so good. I snaked <laughs> it, everything. But Joel suffered from that and uh, only got like a quarter, maybe an eighth of my attention. And he runs this amazing little expo that's been growing every year. It's uh, changed venues a couple times. He's been nice enough to sort of host homebrewers uh, kind of for free, at least in the past. Uh, you can always explore that option. And he's just really passionate. Like, you meet a lot of people, not a lot. You meet some people who are just sort of, like, interested for their own ends. But Joel is a genuinely passionate individual about what we do. And... If you're a dev and you live anywhere near Long Island, um, he's probably got a spot that he would willingly give you. Uh, just do not stay at the Hooker Hotel that I stayed at <laughs> in Jericho. That's Long not Island. what it's called. No, that's pretty much what it was called. I've never been so scared in my life. Do you think it was? Do you think it was scarier than the time that I was driving up to to visit you and I had to stay in a hotel that the door wouldn't close? I do. Have you ever been in Long Island? Uh, no, that's true. I haven't. Like, there's a Lamborghini dealership across the street and then Hooker Hotel. <laughs> there were people driving around in the parking lot throwing live animals and cages into a van. What? Why? Oh, man. Why would they do that? That sounds like a movie. It sounds like my nightmare. But anyways, <laughs> outside of the Hooker Hotel, I highly recommend uh, getting uh, in touch with Joel. Uh, just a wonderful gentleman and uh, very passionate about what we do. Um, but something that sort of happened since the the last episode that we put out that I didn't expect to happen. Um, some people contacted me saying that they were wanting to find a way to maybe donate some money to us. Um, they asked if we had a Patreon up. Um, and that is something that I never once considered doing like anytime i ever saw anyone put a patreon up i would think to myself like why would anyone donate money to someone like just sitting around doing nothing like they don't have a job they're just like going around saying that they're creating things but like who would give their money to them digital um, panhandling i know like it just seemed so pathetic to me uh but as some of you may not know um <laughs> 
when when we set out to make this podcast, you know, we we didn't think that it would cost us any money. We just sort of started putting up episodes using free services. But as the episodes sort of started piling up, uh, I had to upgrade the client that we used to host our MP3s because they had like a twenty hour maximum for free uh, for a free account. So I had to pay. Close to, I think, $140 to upgrade our account to uh, basically support the, the episodes that we're going to be putting up, you know, as time goes on. And after a couple people asked me if, you know, if we had a Patreon that they'd like to donate, I started thinking to myself, like, you know, we had to use some of our own money out of pocket. Like, it, it wouldn't be such a bad idea to, to try to recoup some of that if, if people enjoy what we're doing uh, and maybe you want to help out. So... I took their advice. I set up a Patreon. Uh, you can find it at patreon.com slash NES assembly line. Uh, if you want to check it out, you don't have to donate. I'm not asking you. Please don't think we're begging. Um, but if, <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but I, I, I do still feel a little weird asking. Um, I don't so, laugh. I laugh because I feel weird. Yeah, it, it's a weird position, and we're not, we don't need it. Um, you know, I didn't expect when I paid that hundred forty dollars to be reimbursed in any way. But um, if you find yourself having some extra money and you you enjoy what we do, I'm not saying that you paying us is going to increase the frequency that we put out episodes. We we both still as have much lives. As I'd like yeah, we, we'd love to put to put one out every week, but we both have stuff going on. We both have lives. Um, Long story short, check it out. If you want to donate, great. If you don't want to, no hard feelings. It's not something we need you to do, but we wanted to at least offer the service uh, to people that might want to check it out. And on that note, we will be sending you off with a new track. Uh, it's potentially for the great Kevin Hanley's uh, <laughs> point-and-click classic called Isolation. It is by Zai. And um, in the game, you sort of play as an amnesiac who's not quite certain of what's going on. I hope you can feel that in the music. Yep. So you'll uh, hopefully one day check that game out. (laughs) Um, But in the meantime, we appreciate you guys hanging out with us. As usual, if you want to write in some questions, you can reach us at nesassemblyline at gmail.com. Ask us anything you want, uh, game-related, programming-related, whatever. Um, we'll answer your questions on a future episode. Um, you can reach both of us online on Twitter. I can be found at a ton of glaciers. Bo can be found at Soul Goose. Uh, tweet at us there if you have any questions or if you just want to say what's up. Um, you can always hang out with us at uh, NintendoAge.com. We're in the forums, uh, in the brewery subforum is where we primarily hang out. That's where we talk about our projects. You can go there, ask programming questions, anything you want. Uh, we're there for you there. Not only us, a whole community of people are there waiting for you uh, to answer your questions. In addition to that, if that wasn't enough ways you can get a hold of us, you can also find us on the Nintendo Age Discord chat. You can find the link to there at NintendoAge.com. Uh, it is the first uh, officially endorsed chat room in quite some time from Nintendo Age, so you can find that link very easily from Nintendo Age. Um, but we're both in there also. So we appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll see you again soon when we talk about the Nestef competition in great detail. Uh, and until next time, take it easy, guys.